you've probably uh, participated in many Bible studies in the past. Have you, have you realized or, or ever noted it's hard to remember any specific Bible study? Like we, you, I, I think back years, and there are very few times when I actually remember, oh yeah, we looked at that passage, and this idea was brought forward. It's hard to remember those specifics. Uh, I, I remember a couple of discussions with Chinese graduate students as they were encountering Jesus for the first time in Luke. And there were a few parables that leapt off the page to them and showed them what God was like. I remember those. Um, but another occasion, one of the few I remember uh, very clearly, was this passage that we're looking at from 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, it was the last year, my last year of college. Uh, and one evening, as we studied this passage, it dawned on me that Americans often read the Bible in such a way that we will, will fixate on a particular verse or phrase even, and by doing so, lose the whole message, lose the, the import of what's being said. Uh, so I remember spending an hour trying and failing to convince the, some, these, the Bible study leaders that Paul was referring to himself when he was describing this man in Christ who had visionary experiences of the Lord. I said, I tried and I failed. Could not do it. It was not enough for these friends of mine that Paul says in verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. I, I can vividly recall being astonished that these friends thought that Paul was given a thorn in the flesh because of this other man's visions and revelations. Because how could he, why would he talk in the third person? So, I try, I try to stay mindful that whenever we come to the Bible together, many of us will have approached passages, the passage of the day, in isolation. And we will often have drawn some false conclusions. So you may feel that a sermon series walk through a book, which we do, uh, it has a lot of redundancy. I'm often wrapping back. I'm situating our reading in the flow of thought. And you, you might think, I, he's forgotten. He covered that last week. It's not that I've forgotten. I am, I'm, doing, I'm doing contextualization. So rest assured, it's not that I forget what we cover week to week. Uh, it, it's that context is important. And the larger points have to be kept in mind when we narrow in and we look at uh, a smaller passage. So, now, as we, uh, we're approaching the end of the letter to Corinth, and the reason that Paul refers to these visions and revelations is part of a, a, a larger argument that he's been making, this confrontation with false apostles. He isn't just randomly bringing in visions and revelations. We have seen that these false apostles that had come to Corinth Disturbed the church there, had a profile kind of like a celebrity pastor, which we might see today. They appeal to themselves as a source of authority. 
they, they point to their own skills. They point to their own knowledge, uh, connections in society. It's very similar to celebrity pastors today. And they appear to claim special access to secret knowledge. And Paul's appeal to the Corinthians, to the, these brothers and sisters, is not on the basis of any of those things. His appeal is on the basis of the message of the gospel itself. And on his life as consistent with that message. So he is not pointing to him, himself as a source of authority. He's pointing elsewhere. His confidence is in the truth. The truth itself that Jesus has revealed himself to the Corinthians. And that they have all that they need to measure the messages. They have all that they need to measure the messengers also. So do, do these other apostles, self-proclaimed apostles, line up with the gospel truth? What they say and how they live. Or does the message that Paul brings and how Paul lives line up with the gospel? Now, that's important context. When Paul first, he raises, and then he steers away from the experience of this man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now this, uh, he's raising it and he's referring to it, but he steers away from it because that is a common feature uh, of that emerging Gnostic period within Judaism. After Paul's death, Gnosticism really gains steam. So the second century is known as the Gnostic century, but it was already present there. And Gnosticism, Gnostic teachers always made appeals to experience, to their visionary experiences, to knowledge that they had been given directly from God. So uh, Gnosticism means secret knowledge. So as Paul is comparing his message and his life with these false apostles, he's indicating, I could go to this ground. I could go to the ground of visions and revelation. Verse 1, he says, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I'll go on now to visions and revelations of the Lord. But here is where we often get confused because he, he keeps a rhetorical distance from the experience. He slips into the third person. It, this is a common way of talking. In ancient literature, ancient text, ancient writing. We think about John and the Gospel of John. You remember how John, he never, he doesn't use the first person. He talks about the beloved disciple, or the one that Jesus loved. The one Jesus loved did this or that. That's John, but he's keeping a, a third person distance so that attention isn't drawn to him. Paul's doing the same thing this way. He explains why, he, he also um, he says explicitly why he's using this third-person distance. Verse 6. If I should wish to boast, I wouldn't be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. If I wanted to base my authority on this experience, it, it wouldn't be foolish. I would be telling the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or he hears from me. I want the emphasis to be on the truth. 
that is evident, the truth that I speak and the truth that you can see. So he's saying that real visions of the heavenly realm, true experiences of the heavenly realms, they're not to be shared flippantly. He nowhere else refers to this. He heard things, he saw things that he cannot and he must not tell. He's forbidden from speaking of these things. Whereas the false teachers, they make whatever their spiritual experiences were the, the ground of their authority. They draw all attention there. And Paul rejects that. Clearly rejects that. He says, I could take that approach. I had revelations of the Lord. Whether in the body or out of the body, I, I don't know. But I refrain from staking my authority on that. That's not why it was given. Authority comes from the truth. It just comes from the truth, the truth that I speak and the corresponding truth that I live out. So now, from acknowledging this visionary experience, he takes it in this strange direction. Acknowledging this heightened, this uh, tremendous moment, he draws out the paradox of the gospel. As awesome, as unforgettable as that moment in heaven was. It was not from that glorious experience that he, uh, that he participates in the life and the power of Jesus. It wasn't from that thing that happened that he continues on. That's an important contrast. On the contrary, this is the paradox, it's through weakness that he holds fast to Christ Jesus. It's through the way of Christ, through the way of the cross, that he fellowships with Christ. It's not on the basis of this thing that happened that one time. That's not what keeps him going. That's not what allows him to endure. It's a moment-by-moment thing. So look at verses 7 through 10. So to keep me from becoming conceited, puffed up, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Speculating. Some of the church fathers, uh, they, they thought that, that this experience that Paul had had happened when he was stoned at Lystra. Remember, he was stoned and he was left for dead. They brought him into the city. And they concluded then that the thorn in the flesh was the resulting crippling to his body that had happened. So simultaneously, there's this 
visionary experience and the giving of the thorn. They come together. Pain and glory at the same time. Others, again, this is ancient interpretation. Others separate the vision and the thorn. They suggest that the vision happened somewhere in the temple on one of those occasions when he was there and he had drawn close in worship. Or perhaps uh, when he was waiting three days in blindness. Remember after he'd been blinded on the Damascus Road. He sat there in the house of uh, Simon on the street called Straight. And perhaps in that, those moments, he was taken into the heavenlies. And then the thorn could be anything that came later. A bodily ailment? An evil desire? Whatever it is, it's in his flesh. It's in the body. It's in that part of him that's perishing. It's, it's not going to be with him forever. It's part of this perishing order. Paul didn't intend for the Corinthians to know what it was, or he would have said so. And so we can be comforted. We don't need to know. It's not important for us to know what exactly it was. It's probably more helpful for us that we don't know. What is important to note is the paradox. A paradox is a flip of common sense. It's a surprise flip of what we would expect. That God gave Paul a gift that had been granted to very few. A gift that had been given to Moses. which Moses and Joshua, which we heard about. Access to the heavenly realm. Insight into the heavenlies. A moment, moments with God in the heavenlies. He gave to Isaiah, to Ezekiel, to Jeremiah, and to David. That's as much as we know. Being with God in God's space. Transformative. But the, the paradox of this is that a single experience, however tremendous however awesome and great, couldn't sustain even a prophet or an apostle. Even Paul, he says, would have become conceited and proud. That should, that should be a comfort, I think. No matter how much momentary insight into the glories of God that we have, we are of the stuff we have just in us the stuff to turn that into pride. Satan gazed on the glory of the Almighty One. His access, his privilege twisted into pride. Paul was special. He was chosen. He had been singled out. He had been given a transformative experience that nobody else had. We hear him nothing else like this until we get to John in Revelation. That's the kind of thing that we all think that we want. I, I know I have often thought, if I, if, just, if I could have a visionary experience of the Lord Jesus, if he would just come and stand there, talk to me face to face, I'd never sin again. That, that would do it. To, that's what we want. To be especially special. Especially special. Because we are special. We are called out ones. But we want to be especially special. 
Those are the kinds of things that humans take refuge in when things get difficult, right? Think about this. When we, get, when we feel criticized or we feel like we're failing, we take refuge in some kind of specialness. We take refuge in an idea maybe on, that you're really competent in some area. Well, I might, I might fail at this or I might be criticized for this, but at least I'm good at this. Who hasn't done that? That's just in us. At least I'm good at that. So in the midst of all the hate that was thrown at him, in the midst of all the criticism, all the personal attacks he received, Paul could have taken refuge in the mere fact of experiencing the heavenlies. That could have been his comfort. Well, at least I got that. So those Judaizers, they might be throwing shade on me, but they didn't get to go into the heavenlies. That is not the way of Christ. That's not the way of Christ. Instead, Paul was called to live out the gospel, to experience the gospel with his whole life. Not just a moment, but to live it out, moment by moment. Now, make no mistake, this was not fun. If you look to the Christian life or the way of Jesus for fun, you're going to be disappointed. But it is not fun. It's full of joy, satisfaction, moments of fun. But I, I think we would be misled to call the way of the cross fun. Paul carried a terrible burden. Whatever this was, Whatever it was, he confidently refers to it as a messenger of Satan. It was part of the fallen order. It, whatever it was, harassed Paul with all the vigor of fallenness. It brought home to him this sense, constant sense that he was in the realm of fallenness. His flesh was participating in it. And it left no doubt that this man of Christ... Redeemed messenger of King Jesus was not yet enjoying the fullness of God's promises. He was not yet in the fullness. He wanted this gone. 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 Just as Jesus wanted the cup, the cup of the cross, to pass from his lips. Must I drink this cup? It was not, as a part of the fallen order, it was not in itself good. But what God, God demonstrates his sovereignty in this. The might of his plans, that he can take the messenger of Satan. He can take the fallen thing and he can invert it and he can use it for goodness, for his plans, for redeeming. He can use it for refining. Some of you carry a burden a burden of this fallen order that the enemy uses to attack you. So in your flesh, there's a pain, or there's a weakness, there's a fear, or there's a memory, or there's a word, a wicked word that was spoken to you 
It ought not to be there. We can confidently agree. It ought not to be there. It's there because of fallenness. It's there because there is evil in the world. It was not part of God's good design. And it won't be part of the everlasting realms. And it won't be part of you as we move into everlasting life. It will remain here. The enemy knows this weakness. And he uses it to frustrate, to confuse, to intimidate, and to condemn you. That's his way. And it is right to ask God to remove these things. It is right to ask him to remove. Three times Paul asks, you should keep asking unless the Lord speaks to you and says otherwise. Keep asking that it be removed. And it's right to ask for his help to overcome those fleshly pains. Even as we're asking, we should also hear God's answer to Paul in verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. My gift is enough for you. For my power is most manifest in weakness. The paradox of the way of Christ is that Jesus took all the burdens of fallenness, took all the consequences of fallenness to himself at the cross. And by accepting those in himself, he disarmed Satan. He disarmed the power of Satan who was able to wield those things freely, unchecked. In doing this, Jesus revealed that his way is weakness. It's through weakness. By, by taking to himself the world of fallenness and leaving it in the grave, Jesus was able to judge that evil, to call it what it is, he was able to take it and say that it will remain there and that those that are in him will rise with him and he'll pour new life into his people, pour new life into the world. And those things that have been judged will remain there and will not be with us in everlasting life. And so for Paul, agonizing in his struggle, God didn't say Take comfort in that great experience you had and wait for the next awesome moment. Take comfort in that, that one thing that happened and live from experience to experience. He didn't say that. That's what drives much of American Christianity. Let's be warned about that. The drive from mountaintop to mountaintop, experience to experience. None of the apostles lived that way. There's no, there's no argument for that in the New Testament. Instead, we get this. We get this. My grace is sufficient for you. Because of the work of Jesus, condemning sin on the cross, God says, my 
grace is sufficient for you. What does that mean? If we're supposed to be sustained on that, we better lay hold on it. What does it mean? The grace of God is not a quantity. It's not a thing. This is where the medieval church really got in trouble. They thought about grace as a quantity. as something that could be measured out. There is not an amount of grace so that it's something that can run out and needs to be refilled. The grace of God is connected to God himself. Romans 5, 1 through 2 says, Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The gift of God is active relationship with him. Grace means gift. This, this gift that we stand in is active, ongoing, moment-by-moment relationship with him. It's standing in his favor, in peace with him, with his smile on us, with his joy pouring to us, his delight in us. That's the grace of God that is sufficient for us. The Lord Almighty told his adopted son, Paul, that their ongoing loving relationship was enough. That's what will sustain you, boy. Despite all the weights of this burden that you have to endure, despite the nagging pain in your flesh, despite this thing that seems to mock you and to mock your status as a chosen apostle, shouldn't a chosen apostle be rid of those things? Despite that, he had the ever-present comfort of fellowship with the living God. Fellowship, friendship. At least that's how Paul understood it. We don't have to overinterpret this. It's just right here for us. See verse 10. For the sake of Christ, because of Christ then, I'm content with weakness. Because I have Christ. I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Because I have Christ. Because I have this participation in the divine life. In the love and the life of Christ. I'm content. Whatever the circumstances. I can endure the weakness. I can endure the insults and the hatred. I can pass through the hardships. It's not just on the basis of the hope that awaits us, because that's pretty awesome. The hope, the hope of walking free of all of this, all of the fallenness, that's pretty motivating. But we don't have to just look there. It's participation in his nature that we have now. And he says his nature, his life in us, is made more manifest the weaker we are. I just don't like that. Humility hurts. Humility is humiliating. But he says, my power is made 
perfect. That means brought to its full representation, shown in its glory, in weakness. The more that you hold fast and depend on me, Jesus says, the more my power is shown. The more you acknowledge in word and action that you need me, the more I am shown. So just think, when somebody is impressive and they're strong and they're skilled and attractive, we are left with an impression of him or her. The interaction goes and we think, that was an impressive person. Human strength is what captivates and draws our admiration. But a person who is depending on God and his spirit becomes a vessel. And we're, we're almost unattentive to the vessel. I remember hearing John Stott speak when he was 80 years old. Um, I don't know if you know who John Stott was. A powerful voice for the gospel in the 20th century. He had a gravelly voice because it was failing. He spoke slowly. I speak slowly. He he was slower than me. He was altogether unimpressive. He was bent and wizened. Uh, Rather than leaving an impression of, uh, well, rather than appearing impressive, you were left thinking, wow, he's old. That's, how is he even standing? I don't recall anything specifically that he said. The rhetorical skills weren't, that's not what attracted. But when I left the church that night, I and every other student that was there went out of the building bold to share the gospel of Jesus. That's what was impressed on us, is that God is powerful and good and needs to be known. John Stott is old. (laughs) When I am weak, then I am strong. That's what was conveyed. And that's a paradox. We would rather be strong. But it's only by the presence and the influence of the Holy Spirit that we can stop chasing that dream of being impressive. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He enables you to see according to the values of heaven. He is who enables us, independence on him, to filter our experience, to filter our conversations according to heaven. It's through his lens that we can see the might of kindness. Kindness in the world doesn't really, it doesn't move. It's through his lens that we see the earth-shattering power of forgiveness. Changes everything. Through his lens, we see the awesome strength of mercy and gentleness. And through him that we see the, the, the wonder that melts hearts of self-sacrificial love. Why would anyone lay down their lives? Why would anyone give themselves up? Why would anyone suffer or struggle for the sake of someone else? It's the lens of heaven. 
that allows us to value that. The ways of God are folly to the world. That's, that theme is laid out here powerfully in 2 Corinthians. It's only when we, when we live them that we make them known. When we're just saying them. Regardless of our spiritual experiences, regardless of uh, how pious we are, our words are empty until we act like our Lord Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying here. It's not what, it's not the experience that we had five years ago, ten years ago. It's not how polished we are in talking about God. Do we live the way of the cross? That communicates who God is. Let's pray. Lord, we, we are weak. Each one of us here knows the, the ways that our enemy takes advantage of us. The grounds on which accusation comes. We ask you, would you silence the voice of condemnation? We ask you to sanctify us, make us holy, remove those things in us that ought not to be there, correct our thinking. We ask you to relieve our pains and aches in our body. Lord, we long, to, we long for your design to be fully realized in us, that we would be the men, the women, the children that you intend us to be. That's what we want. Lord, give us trust that in giving yourself to us, you are doing it. Give us trust in Jesus' name.